Welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. Um, we welcome each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we are, we are very happy to have each and every one of you uh, with us this morning. My name is John Petrillo. I'm one of the um, lay worship leaders here at Faith Lutheran Church. And uh, we'll be offering God's message to us uh, this morning. As Jeff mentioned, uh, we've been doing a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And so for the past uh, three weeks now, we've been walking through uh, the, the various chapters of the book in Jonah, chapters 1, 2, and 3, hearing the story of Jonah and his relationship uh, with God and God's use of, uh, of, of the prophet Jonah. Um, today we're going to be focusing on the last chapter of the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. Um, if you're not sure where Jonah is in your Bible, um, it's not much of a surprise. It's tucked in towards the end of the Old Testament, smashed in between the books of Obadiah and Micah. And those generally aren't books of the Bible that we camp out in for very long. And so um, uh, if you want to take a moment during this introduction and try to find that in your Bible, we encourage you to do that. And for those of you who are visiting this morning, um, all of the sermons from the past three weeks and, and all the sermons at Faith Youth and Church are up on our website in both the form of video and audio. And we encourage you to go ahead and visit our website and listen to those messages because they have built up to this point to where we arrive where we arrive today. But for those of you who are visiting today or maybe missed a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to kind of bring you up to speed real quick here. So in uh, Jonah chapter 1, God has a message for Jonah. And he says, go to Nineveh, which is east. That's that way, east. And Jonah says, I don't think so. I'm going to go to Tarshish, west that way. And so Jonah heads off to Tarshish, says, I don't think so. God says, yeah, I think so. So while you're on this boat to Tarshish, he caused a great storm to come, almost sank the boat. All the sailors were feared for their lives, and they all talked amongst themselves about how to handle this. They ultimately approached Jonah and said, what's going on? He's like, it's me. Throw me overboard. I'm running away from God, and if you want to save your ship, give me a toss. And uh, reluctantly, they give him a toss. So off he goes. And then God sends a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And that represents the end of chapter 1. That's a big chapter in the book of Jonah. A lot of things happen in there. Then chapter 2 finds Jonah in the belly of this fish. And he's there for three days and three nights. And he prays. And he prays and he prays and he prays. For three days and three nights he prays. He um, prays for his own salvation. He prays for redemption and basically confesses his shortcomings. And at the end of those three days, the fish spits him out onto dry land. And there Jonah sits at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 3, God approaches Jonah again and says, Go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, if Jonah had any second thoughts, they aren't brought up in chapter 3 of this book. He says... Okay, I'm going to go to Jonah. Um, I'm going to go to Nineveh. So Jonah obeys this time, and he travels into the heart of the great city, a city that takes three days to cross. And he walks into the city, and he preaches this message that says, in 40 days, this city will be overthrown. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Pastor Brian preached on that last week. Eight words, the worst sermon in history. That's all he said. But it was effective. And the people of Nineveh repented. 
and they changed their ways. And they said, let us turn from the way we've been and let us confess before God and let us repent. And maybe he will spare us from this calamity. And at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, they are spared from that calamity. And verse 10 of chapter 3 reads, When God saw what they had done and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And they all lived happily ever after the end. Wouldn't that be a great end of the story? Right? They all, they all repented. They're all saved. They all lived happily ever after. That's a great end of the story. And that's the way good stories should work, right? I mean, the hero is given a mission, but he doesn't want to follow through on it because he's got internal conflicts and he doesn't want to do it. So then he has a moment of truth and he resolves his internal conflicts and he begrudgingly so, but does it anyway. Basically, he does what he's called to do. And everybody is saved at the end of the story because the hero did what he was called to do. Boom. And you add to that and weave throughout that a little message about God's sovereignty and God's will being done in the process, and it makes it an even better story. Just perfect. Great place to end the story. And for many of us, that is where we end the story, right? Think of how you grew up knowing about the story of Jonah and the whale. Not even Jonah and the fish, because the Bible calls it a fish, not a whale. We always learned it as Jonah and the whale. God says, go. Jonah says, no. God turns him around. He's in a fish. He goes back. They're all saved. That's where we all kind of end it. But there's another chapter to the story. And it tells us a lot. Not just about the nature of Jonah's true heart, but about the nature of God himself. And as we're going to talk about this morning, it has a lot to tell us about the true nature of ourselves as well. So hopefully you've had enough time to find the book of Jonah. If you will join me in a quick word of prayer before we get started, we will get underway. Father in heaven, we pray before you this morning that the words I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts will be true to your word and bring honor and glory to you and help us develop a greater understanding of you and your will for our lives. Amen. Let's start with a reading from Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Now remember, God has just relented and saved the, the city of Nineveh. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord simply replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now, we're going to stop here and camp out for a couple minutes. Because for the few times that we actually do remember that there's a chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, every time I've read that, I've been like, what? 
I mean, there's so much wrong with those first four verses in the book of Jonah of chapter four that you just you don't really even know where to start, right? Who is Jonah to be talking to God that way? The creator of all the universe, just ripping on him. God, I told you this was going to happen. Don't you know any better? This is what I was trying to avoid. Just venting so much raw anger and, and just letting God have it. Who is he to be talking to God like that? And then he's yelling at God for being compassionate and loving and caring. It's like, what kind of argument is that? Could you imagine ripping into your spouse? You're too loving. You're too caring. I don't like that about you or your children or your parents. Don't love people so much. And then you've got Jonah, the hypocrite praying for his own salvation in chapter 2 in the belly of a fish, and here in chapter 4, praying for the condemnation of this great city of Nineveh. I got mine, but I don't want them to get theirs. So many things going wrong with this. And we hear it and we're just like, that is horrible. What kind of person would do that? There's no way I could possibly ever think that way, let alone say those things. But before we um, come down too hard on our good friend Jonah and think that it can't be us, let's just take a minute and put it into perspective. Let's take a look at the world through Jonah's eyes and then we'll take a good hard look at ourselves. It doesn't say this anywhere really in the book of Jonah in any of the four chapters, but as Pastor Brian explained in the first week, we have to remember that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was like a very powerful and evil empire during the time of Jonah. They were mortal enemies of the Israelites. And many of Jonah's countrymen would have experienced horrible atrocities at the hand of the Assyrians. Pastor Brian went into this in a lot of detail in the first uh, week of this sermon series. And I would highly encourage you to listen to that sermon. It is just amazing how horrible the Assyrians were to the Israelites. So picture the worst person, the worst possible evil that you can imagine, and that's who Jonah is railing against. But suffice it to say that, that Assyria was, was an arch enemy of, of Israel, and Jonah hated these people. So with that perspective, think back onto yourself. Think about your most mortal enemy, the person that you cannot stand. A group of people in society that you find it very difficult to relate to. Maybe it's a specific race or people from a specific country or in this day and age, political affiliation maybe. We see a lot of that. Maybe people of a different religion. Or maybe it's much more personal than that. Maybe you or someone you love was abused and you find the idea of providing grace to any kind of abuser beyond anything you can possibly imagine. Maybe someone you loved was killed by a drunk driver, and so you find the idea of providing grace to any kind of an alcoholic or drug addict to be beyond anything that you can imagine. Maybe you or someone that you know is a victim of a crime, and you can't imagine providing grace to anyone who's committed any kind of crime, if that's beyond you. What are the people that you personally find the hardest to be around? What if one of those people 
were sitting in your chair when you came to worship here next Sunday morning, what would you do? Think about it for a minute. What would you do? How would you feel deep down in your heart? Would you talk to that person knowing who they are? Would you do the hard work of trying to build a relationship with them knowing who they are? Would you share the love of Jesus with them and become the agent of grace in their lives? Maybe the one person who could do it if you knew who they really are? Or is God's grace only for those of us that we choose and that we approve of? If you answer that question, yes, honestly, you're not alone. Jeff mentioned in his welcome today this idea of a circle getting smaller, and it's just really interesting that he brought that up because we're going to talk about the author and theologian C.S. Lewis. And he described this very thing. He described this as setting up what's called a circle of grace. We all know intellectually that we're not worthy of God's grace, right? Each and every one of us is unworthy of God's grace, and we all know that in our heads. But we have a tendency to build this circle, and the circle of grace. And on the inside of the circle is the people like us, the people that are just kind of unworthy of God's grace. We've gotten most of the way there, but we got a few rough edges that need to be sanded off here and there, but we're good people. God doesn't have to do much work with us, right? We, we're towing the line, right? We're Christians. We go to church. We worship. We pray. We read Scripture. At least we talk about doing all those things. We're good. We're in the circle. And then there's people on the outside of the circle. Now those people, they are really unworthy of God's grace. They are just so bad and so rough around the edges that God's grace can't possibly apply to them. And if God's got the grace, it can't possibly be large enough to cover all the people outside that circle. They are just too far gone. And deep in our hearts, we can't stand the idea that God's grace would apply to them. That God's sovereign grace would be poured out to these people. And if we're the ones that have to do the pouring, that makes it 10 times worse and 10 times harder. We don't have to think very, very far to this past week to think of how people interact with each other. Two mass shootings just less than one day apart, right? El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. And the national news feeds have been running a story about a man this week named Greg Zanus. And I want to share his story with you this morning. Greg Zanus is a carpenter who lives in Aurora. We've got a picture of him up there on the screen. And um, his father-in-law was murdered back in 1996. And in response to that murder, Greg founded a ministry named Crosses for Losses. And the purpose of that ministry is to build and deliver and set up crosses to honor victims of crimes and put those crosses at the locations where they lost their lives. He builds these memorial crosses for free. He drives them there uh, and sets them up himself. And these crosses have appeared at scenes of mass shootings and tornadoes and bus crashes and wildfires for the past 23 years. We see these images all the time. We're like, oh, those are neat crosses. It's Greg Zanus who 
creates almost all of them. In the past 23 years, he's built over 26,000 crosses and driven over 500,000 miles crisscrossing the United States to deliver them and set them up. And as you can imagine, he had a pretty tough week this week. He drove from Aurora, Illinois, to El Paso, Texas, with 22 crosses in the back of his truck and set them up down there for the victims of that shooting down in Walmart. He stuck around for a couple of hours to answer a couple of questions, but otherwise does this with no fanfare or anything. But he's become um, pretty well known and some people wanted to talk to him. But within an hour or two of setting up the crosses, he was back in his truck and driving. 1,600 more miles from El Paso, Texas, straight to Dayton, Ohio, sleeping in his truck, eating sandwiches that he cleared out his fridge to make, and he set up nine more crosses in Dayton, Ohio for the people there. And without saying a word, when he was all said and done, he hopped in his truck and drove the 300 miles back to Aurora so that he could finally sleep in his own bed after a week of sleeping in his truck. So again, Greg does this without any fanfare, public announcements, but when he was pressed by a reporter for why he thinks these shootings are occurring in the United States, he had something really interesting to say. And I think if we're honest, it's something that we've all thought before. And he said he believes that these shootings are the consequences of a country that has forgotten God. And I'm seeing some heads go up and down. So we're all like, mm-hmm, yeah, say it, Greg, say it. Beginning in 1962 with the U.S. Supreme Court decision to outlaw official prayer in school. And here's, here's a quote from, from Greg. I think it's real simple. You have a second generation of godless people who don't have a conscience. Do you think any of these shooters were men of faith? I don't think so, he says. So true. Now, in spite of Greg's personal Christian beliefs, he's, he's not pushy about his faith, and, and he's very considerate about the religions of the other victims that he's setting up these memorials for. He takes the time to scan their obituaries and determine what their religious background is and determines whether he should set up a cross or a Star of David or even a crescent moon. And he's even memorialized Buddhists and atheists as well. So kind of an interesting modern day parallel to the story of Jonah. We have this lost nation and a person going into this lost nation to share the message of God's love. But I told you that story so I could tell you this story because there's another part to the Greg Zanus story. And it parallels the chapter of Jonah that we're talking about this morning. You see, the first mass shooting victims that Greg memorialized were in Columbine, Colorado in 1999. That was like the first mass school shooting that made big headlines here in the United States. Twelve students and one teacher were killed in that shooting, along with the two gunmen who were themselves students at the school. When Greg planted memorial crosses in Clement Park near the school in Colorado, he created a major uproar. And the reason why he created a major uproar, if anybody can remember, is that he put up 15 crosses, one for each of the 13 victims and one for each of the two gunmen who had taken their own lives in the attack, too. The uproar was so great, and the negative phone calls that he received were so many that Greg left his home in Aurora at a 5 p.m. on a Saturday evening, drove 14 hours to Columbine, Colorado, and in the middle of the night, 
he took the crosses down. And when people came to that memorial the, the next Sunday morning at sunrise to remember their loved ones, they were stunned to find that all the crosses were just gone. The people of Columbine had a circle of grace that was big enough for 13, but not big enough for 15. And Greg's response to that is, I don't want to be a part of it. I'm here trying to share love and memorialize victims, not create controversy. So like Jonah and like the people of Columbine, we're happy when God saves us, but we're not necessarily so happy when God saves others. In fact, sometimes we're angry when God saves others. And at best, we're downright indifferent when God saves others. We just really don't care. And it especially happens with those who think and act differently than we do. Think and act differently than we do. So how do we go about changing this? Right? How do we change the way we feel about people who think and act differently than we do? Well, we pray and we bury ourselves in Scripture, right? We try to learn as much about God's nature as we can. We soften our hearts through the activities of prayer and Scripture reading. But we also have to start seeing the world through the eyes of other people. We have to see the world through their perspective and we have to realize that sometimes they just see things differently than we do. And we have to realize in the process that God sees things differently than we do sometimes too. So this has been kind of a heavy message up to this point, right? I agree, we've been camping out here for a little bit, but I wanna lighten the mood just a little bit and we'll, and we'll talk about seeing things through other people's perspective. Deb, can you put the next slide up? How many of you have seen this dress before? A couple of hands going up. This dress caused a sensation on the internet back in 2015. A couple in Scotland was getting married and the mother of the bride sent a picture of this dress to her daughter to say, this is the dress I'm gonna to wear to your wedding. And the mother and the daughter got into a conversation about the color of the dress because they couldn't agree what color it was. Right? Can you imagine? So just sit there and, and think about what color the dress is. Time passed and, and the, the daughter was really perplexed and so she posted a picture of this dress on Facebook and asked all of her friends and followers on Facebook to weigh in on what the color of the dress is. And they too could not agree on what the color of the dress was. And word spread and the thing went around and within a few days, 37 million people around the world had seen pictures of this dress and we're debating what the color of it is. It's ridiculous, right? Just ridiculous. So, that's the debate, the color of the dress. Now, show of hands, how many people in this room see a blue dress with black lace? A lot of them. How many people in this room see a white dress with gold lace? One in the front row, one back there. Couple, right? For those of you who see a blue dress with black lace, let's look at the next slide. That's what other people see. They see a white dress with gold lace. Now, there's all kinds of scientific wah-wah about why some people see blue and black and some people see gold and, and, and white. But the important thing to remember is that it's one dress. 
with two colors. But people see it completely differently. When looking at this dress this week, preparing for this sermon message, I was talking to our daughter Jenny about this. And I've always looked at this dress, I'm like, this is so silly. This is clearly a blue dress with black lace. And Jenny was taking a look at the picture and she's like, this is so silly. This is clearly, uh, and I'm like, yeah, say it, sister. And she goes, this is clearly a white dress with gold lace. I'm like, what? Now, Jenny's our daughter. Um, I like her. (laughs) She's pretty smart. She's got a heart for Jesus. But she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) That's clearly a blue dress with black lace. And I'm like, and we put these two pictures up next to her, and she's like, when I look at these two pictures, I see the exact same thing in both of them. Even when you put them side by side, that's what I see, is a, is a white dress with gold lace. So if you've got a person who thinks almost exactly like you do, she leans a little conservative too, by the way, so she's just like totally in my corner of things. I like her. But she doesn't know dress colors from anything. And on this one particular topic, we just have to understand that we see things totally differently. Okay? For the record, the manufacturer of the dress says it's blue with black lace. So just to settle it and not leave anybody on a cliffhanger here, for anybody who sees it as white with gold, you are officially wrong. (laughs) But we love you anyway. So while we're on this subject, let's have fun with a couple of other things. Let's just take a couple of other pictures. People see things differently. God sees things differently. How many people look at this and they see a picture of a seal? Show of hands. Yeah. How many people look at this and they see a picture of a donkey's head? Yeah. People see things differently. God sees things differently. Let's move ahead. Next slide. How many people look at this and they see a picture of a duck? Yeah. How many people take a look at this and they see a picture of a rabbit? People are like, mmm, couple of hands. The rabbit's facing that way with his ears sticking back. People see things differently. God sees things differently. Let's take a look at this next one. How many people see the face of an Indian looking off to the window there? Yeah? How many people see somebody dressed in a parka facing a wall? Yeah. People see things differently. God sees things differently too. Let's take a look at this next one. How many people see the picture of a young woman? Yeah, kind of looking backwards that way. Young woman. How many see the picture of an old woman? Yeah, looking this way. Perspectives. People see things differently than we do. And God sees things differently than we do too. Let's see the next one. This is pretty common. How many people see a chalice in this picture? Big cup, black cup in the middle of it. Yeah. How many people see the outlines of two white faces facing each other, noses almost touching in the middle? Yeah. People see things differently, and God sees things differently too. I think we've got more. Let's go. How many people see a man playing a saxophone? Yeah. Funny-shaped man with a big nose, by the way, but playing a saxophone. How many people see the outline of a woman's face with a shadow? Yeah. People see things differently, and God sees things differently. 
How many people see the outline of a man wearing glasses? A lot of people. How many people see the word liar? Turn your head a little to the right. Look at the word liar. People see things differently than we do. God sees things differently than we do too. 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing this summer, right? How many people see mountains on the moon? Mountains, anyone? Oh, not many. Okay. Let's see the next one. How many people see craters on the moon? Yeah? Okay, some people didn't raise their hands. They're like, I don't see anything. I just see gray. <laughs> How many believe that that's the exact same picture? Just rotated 180 degrees. Exact same picture. But on the left, looks like they're hills or raised things. And on the right, they're indentations. Perspective. People see things differently, and so does God. How about another one? How many see a man in a boat with a big fish? How about this for Jonah? Yeah? All right, let's turn this one 180 degrees. How many see a man in real trouble in the mouth of a bird? Perspective. God sees things differently than we do. Last one. How many see a bunch of criminals robbing a store at gunpoint? A couple of thugs. Five, ten of you see it? Nobody else sees it? Yeah. How many see beautiful children lost in need of grace and salvation? None of us. But God sees that. He sees things differently than we do. God loves us. God loves us. But we have to remember that God loves other people as well. He does. And if we love God, we have to love other people as well. Now the good news is, if we truly love God, it's a lot easier to love other people as well too. We just got to get past ourselves. And by seeing people as God sees them, we begin to care a little bit more about them and we care about, more about their salvation, and we care more about our calling to reach out to them. So what does this mean for our church? We've got our mission and vision statement posted, and we've talked all about this. Making disciples, growing disciples who grow disciples. Planting churches who grow disciples who plant churches. But if you dig deeper into our mission and vision statement up on our website, and we encourage everybody to do that, there's a section in there that talks about what our convictions are. And one of those convictions, and it's up here right now, lost people matter to God, so they matter to us. Now, I'm just going to read it. You can read it off the screen too. We recognize that there's an urgent need for Jesus in the world and that there are many who are wandering without the Savior. We believe the church is God's strategy to reach those far from Jesus. We seek and create opportunities to interact with others invest in them, and point them to Jesus. We believe this is the true purpose of every follower of Jesus, and it is the purpose of Faith, Ruth, and Church. We want to share the gospel with all people, churched and unchurched, because we know the difference Jesus can make in their lives. I've had a number of conversations in the past several years with folks, friends here at church, friends at work, family at family reunions and we've all joked about the state of disarray that our country is in 
the state of disarray that our society is in, the state of disarray that our state is in. And many times at the end of those conversations, we'll throw our hands up in the air and we'll joke about, yep, I'm ready for Jesus to come take me now. Just get me out of here. Let the rapture come. Now, oftentimes that's a joke, right? We're saying that in jest, and it's kind of a funny way to end that conversation. But sometimes it really is a reflection of the fact that we're really not too attached to this world. And that's not a bad thing either, right? God doesn't want us to be too attached to this world. But every time it's a reflection on how hopeless we feel. Because it just feels like our society has become unhinged and we just don't know what to do about it. But what if we, as individuals, and what if we, as a church, stopped praying for the rapture to come and take us away from here and started praying for people to redeem themselves and turn their world back to God? Faith within church exists for these unchurched people as well as churched people. But a lot of times when we sit inside these walls, protected from this rain that is falling in these chairs, listening to this message and singing this music, we feel that we are on the inner circle and God exists just for us. We need to destroy the circle and realize that God doesn't have one. Let's turn our attention back to Jonah here. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I always found a little curious why Jonah's waiting to see what would happen to the city because he's already howled out with God that God's not going to destroy the city. Yet he's hanging around and waiting. Kind of curious little thing there. And... and uh, we're going to move along in the interest of time, but that's, that's a separate conversation on its own, I think. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God again said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So we'll hang out here for just a couple minutes too, and then we'll move on. He's at it again, right? Captain Melodrama, whining about a plant, whining about the shade that he lost. Complaining to God about this. More of the same. Total drama and a complete meltdown over a plant this time. How many times do we let the petty frustrations of our lives get in the way of what God is trying to do through us? We've all done it where we just have totally overreacted to something. If God is really at the center of our lives, the nickels and dimes of the world just do not matter. It's petty. We just need to let it go. It means nothing in the grand scheme of things. We are saved by Jesus Christ and there is nothing else that can happen to us in the world that is nothing more than a footnote to that. We are saved by Jesus Christ. In addition to crying over a worm, the question we gotta ask ourselves is how often have we cried over something like a pet? 
the loss of a item that has sentimental value to us, something that broke, that we had to throw away, that got taken. But how many times have we cried over the soul of a friend of ours that we know does not have a relationship with Jesus? It's perspective. The other thing I find interesting about these verses is this. God has just saved a city of 120,000 people. Jonah very reluctantly did what Jonah was asked to do and mission accomplished. The city is saved. But God's not done because Jonah cares um, very little about the people in the city, but God cares tremendously not only about them, but about the one, Jonah himself. It'd be very easy for God to just shrug Jonah off and say, hey, you did it? Jonah, you're getting kind of old. You've been a prophet for about a half a dozen years or so now, and this was your biggest feat ever, and it was a little rocky, and I'm just done with you because I'm not sure I can use you anymore after this. It was a little rocky. But he doesn't. He's just saved this big city now. He's taking all his time, and he's pouring into Jonah. But he cares about the one, and he cares about each and every one of us as well. And he cares about that one person at work, or at school, or in our neighborhood, that we can't stand. God cares about them as well. The last thing about that verse is just a reminder to each and every one of us that if God can use a worm to accomplish his purpose, he can use each and every one of us as well. Think about that. Last verse, Jonah, chapters 10 and 11. I wish I were dead, Jonah says. But the Lord says, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? What are the things that we love more than our friends and neighbors need for Jesus? Is it our reputation? Is it our comfortable lifestyle? Is it our relationships with others that we don't want to embarrass ourselves in front of? God calls Jonah in these verses to stop pitying himself and start pitying other people. He calls Jonah to stop loving himself so much and to start loving other people. Loving people in a way that goes and serves and sacrifices for the kind of love that Jesus showed to each and every one of us. And he calls each and every one of us to do the same thing, to go and serve and love others. Now, we already talked about how God ruined the story by putting an extra chapter on here, right? And there's one thing that we'd like to know at the end of this chapter to try to redeem it and turn it back into the perfect ending of the story after all. And the question is, did Jonah learn his lesson? Did he repent himself? Did he learn to love other people? Did he learn the lesson that God called for him to do? Did he learn to love lost people? We don't know for sure. Most Bible scholars believe that Jonah himself was the only person who could have written the book of Jonah. And so the book of Jonah is actually attributed to Jonah himself. And that might imply that he learned his lesson. Why would he write this story about himself? It's very embarrassing unless he repented and learned his lesson and turned. But the truth is, we really don't know. 
And the other truth is, that's not really the right question to ask to determine if this is the perfect end of the story. The question that we need to ask if we want to know if this is the perfect end of the story is, did we learn our lesson? Not did Jonah learn his lesson, but did we? Have we learned to stop pitying ourselves and start pitying other people? Have we learned to stop loving ourselves so much and start loving other people? We live in a town, combined population of 130,000 people. People are leaving the state of Illinois in droves at some levels, right? And none of us want to be the last one here stuck turning off the lights, right? But the people that are here need Jesus, and we are called to share him with them. So those are the questions that we need to answer, and the question, like Jonah, is are we listening and are we learning? Will you guys please pray with me? Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the story of Jonah. We thank you that like so many people in the Bible, he was so imperfect. He was so raw, so rough. Lord, we thank you that as a God, that you are not fair in our opinion. We thank you, God, that you're not fair because if you were fair, we would all be in really big trouble ourselves. Lord, we thank you that even though we put a ring of grace around ourselves that excludes certain people, that you never exclude us. That your ring of grace, if you even have one, is infinite. That you love all and you forgive all. Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us learn the lesson from Jonah. That we should too love all and forgive all that we should share your grace with all that we come to meet so that they can come to know you and your son as we do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.